With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Southern Gothic is a podcast that explores the history behind some of the American South's darkest days, greatest mysteries, and most chilling ghost stories. In the pre-dawn hours of July 11, 1804, Vice President Aaron Burr left Manhattan and took a small boat across the Hudson River to Weehawken, New Jersey, where it faces political rival Alexander Hamilton on a secluded dueling ground. The final culmination of intense political rivalry and personal animosity that had gone on between these two prominent political figures in the early United States. Hamilton, a founding father and the first Secretary of the Treasury, was a vocal leader of the Federalist Party, and Burr, a skilled lawyer, was the Vice President of the United States under Thomas Jefferson. For years, Hamilton had made it his personal mission to thwart Burr's political aspirations, whom he purportedly deemed a, quote, dangerous man. But what had finally caused the men to take their differences to the dueling ground was a series of insults Hamilton allegedly made against Burr that were reported publicly in the Albany Register. Burr was irate and, feeling his honor was being called into question, demanded an explanation, but Hamilton was evasive and the situation escalated over the following weeks as a number of letters were sent back and forth between Hamilton, Burr, and their appointed seconds to try and resolve the affair. But as we all know, these attempts prove futile. So on July 11, 1804, just a few minutes after seven in the morning, Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton stood 10 paces across from each other with pistols in hand. But according to one of Hamilton's biographers, Ron Chernow, Hamilton gambled on the fact that Burr would not shoot to kill. Hamilton knew that if Burr did shoot to kill, that Burr would be branded as a murderer. It would ruin his career. Tragically, Hamilton's assumption was wrong. What happened next is somewhat shrouded in mystery, but upon the signal, two shots were fired and Hamilton was struck in the abdomen. The bullet penetrated his liver and then lodged in his spine. He was then quickly ferried back to Manhattan, where he died the next day after 31 hours of agonizing pain. As for Burr, well, he was entirely unharmed and quickly left the scene in fear of legal prosecution. But just as Hamilton had believed, 
Aaron Burr's actions on that fateful day marked the beginning of the vice president's political downfall. Burr's legacy in American history was forever tarnished by the murder of Hamilton. Eight years later, he personally suffered from a tragedy that was far worse than shame. When his beloved daughter, Theodosia, went missing at sea with absolutely no explanation as to why. A mystery that has endured for over two centuries, perpetuated by wild speculation that includes everything from pirates warships, to local lore, and even ghosts. My name is Brandon Schecksnyder, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Theodosia Burr Alston was a pioneer for early American women and was celebrated for her education and intellectual achievements. Born on June 21, 1783 in Albany, New York, to Aaron Burr and Theodosia Bartow Prevost, her mother was well-known in society for her intelligence and class. But it caused quite the stir when she, a widowed mother of five, fell in love and married the much younger Burr who was a lawyer and soldier in the Revolutionary War. Sadly, Theodosia was the only one of their children to survive past early childhood. And as such, Aaron Burr became quite attached to his little girl and, being quite the progressive for his time, he refused to allow her to be reduced to a debutante, providing her with the best education she could possibly receive. Well, Theodosia clearly took after her mother and rose to this challenge, as it's said that by the age of three, she could already read and write. Burr biographer James Parton described the young girl's success in his 1858 book, The Life and Times of Aaron Burr, which he dedicated, quote, to the memory of Theodosia, the daughter. In her 10th year, she was reading Horace and Terence and the original Latin learning the Greek grammar, speaking French, studying Gibbon, practicing on the piano, taking lessons in dancing, and learning to skate. She was precocious and was accounted a prodigy. It's quite likely that during her life, Theodosia was the most educated woman in the country. 
But unfortunately, no matter how much was invested into that education, it could never really prepare her for the numerous personal tragedies and struggles that she'd endure throughout her life. The first of which having occurred when she was only 11 years old, when her 48-year-old mother passed away from stomach cancer in 1794. By the time this happened, Theodosia and her father were already pretty close, but after her mother passed, the pair became each other's most treasured companions, and throughout the rest of her life, as her father was off pursuing his political aspirations, Theodosia regularly corresponded with him as a way to not only connect, but also to practice her composition. And of course, being the devoted father that he was, Burr responded to each and every letter. Over the years, they exchanged thousands of these letters, and today that correspondence offers a unique view into the young woman's life, demonstrating how close the pair really were and how proud Theodosia was of her dad, a pride that never wavered, even later in life when Burr's reputation began to wane. You appear to me so superior, so elevated above other men. I contemplate you with such a strange mixture of humility, admiration, reverence, love, and pride. My vanity would be greater if I had not been placed so near you. And yet my pride is our relationship. I'd rather not live than not be the daughter of such a man. Then, in 1800, when she was only 17 years old, Theodosia fell in love with a wealthy planter from South Carolina named Joseph Alston. Alston was a lawyer by trade, but at the time, what he was really known for was being the wealthiest man in the state, having owned an extensive rice plantation that consisted of over 6,250 acres and 204 enslaved people. The pair wed on February 2, 1801, and while some have claimed that the union was a bit transactional, as Zalston had political ambitions of his own, and Theodosia might have been codependently looking for a way to alleviate her father's debts, it's clear from letters that they genuinely enjoyed each other's company and were quite in love. Also, an interesting side note here is that Theodosia and Joseph were actually the first pair of newlyweds to honeymoon at Niagara Falls. Well, only several months after their nuptials, they had the good fortune of witnessing Aaron Burr sworn in as Vice President of the United States. In the following year, the young couple welcomed their one and only child, a son named Aaron Burr Alston. Although they affectionately liked to call him Gampy. Unfortunately, the delivery did not go well, and Theodosia suffered from a prolapsed uterus during Gampy's birth, resulting in a lifelong struggle with repeated illness and infection. On numerous occasions, this pain grew so bad that Theodosia even believed she might not survive the continued struggles, and on one particular occasion, she wrote to her husband, who at the time was away fulfilling his duties in the state legislature, which she believed might be her final wishes. To you, my beloved, I leave our child, the child of my bosom, 
who was once a part of myself and from whom I shall shortly be separated by the cold grave. You love him now, henceforth love him for me also. And O oh, my husband, attend to his last prayer of a doughty mother. Death is not welcome to me. I confess it is ever dreaded. You have made me too fond of life. Had you then, though kind, though tender husband, had you, friend of my heart, may heaven prosper you and may we meet hereafter. Obviously, Theodosia survived the extreme pain, but it became apparent early on that she was struggling to adapt to life in South Carolina, whether it was due to the culture or the isolation of living on a plantation, since after all, she was used to city life up north. So soon enough, Theodosia began spending half of her time up in New York with her father. Yet this arrangement did not last for long as on July 11th, 1804, Aaron Burr became what is possibly now one of the most notorious figures in American politics when he shot and killed his political rival in a duel. Facing murder charges, Burr fled New York and a series of events then took place that we're not going to get into here today. But just know that as Burr's political fortunes faded, and he made some really wild attempts to regain power, Theodosia remained the ever-dutiful daughter, so much so that after his trial for treason in 1807, she and her husband helped him flee the country to Europe. For the next five years, Burr lived in exile, and although Theodosia's health continued to deteriorate, likely the product of what is now believed to be uterine cancer, she never stopped advocating for her father, regularly writing to the Secretary of the Treasury and even First Lady Dolly Madison, begging for assistance and helping him to return. What indeed would I not risk once more to see him, to hang upon him, to place my child upon his knee, and again spend my days in the happy occupation of endeavoring to anticipate his wishes. But if the physical and emotional pain that she endured during that time wasn't bad enough, the joy that Theodosia felt upon her father's return in May of 1812 was short-lived, as the following month, her beloved son, Gampy, contracted malaria and died at their home in South Carolina. The boy, was only 10 years old. There is no more joy for me. The world is black. I have lost my boy. You can only imagine the anguish Theodosia felt, and it's said that the only thing that kept the grieving mother alive in the aftermath of her son's death was the possibility of seeing her father once again. Unfortunately, the War of 1812 had commenced, and this was not going to be an easy task. Aside from the fact that Joseph Alston had been elected governor of South Carolina that year and, and as such couldn't accompany her due to his responsibilities leading the state militia, the trip up to New York was through an active war zone, infested by pirates 
and enemy combatants. Obviously, Alston was quite concerned by this and did not want his frail, grieving wife to go alone, but he also knew that he could not stop her. So he reached out to his close friend and physician, Dr. Timothy Green, and arranged for him to accompany her to New York aboard the Patriot, a, quote, famously fast ship, which had originally been built as a pilot boat, but was commissioned by the United States to serve as a privateer vessel during the war. Alston then used his position as governor to write a letter requesting safe passage of the vessel from the British Navy. And on December 31st, 1812, Theodosia, Dr. Green, and her maid boarded the schooner at the port of Georgetown. Joseph Alston accompanied his wife onto the vessel, gave her a heartfelt kiss goodbye, and then returned to dry land as the Patriot took to sea. Theodosia was finally going to be reunited with her beloved father. Unfortunately, the ship never arrived, and that sweet, loving goodbye that Governor Alston shared with Theodosia was the last time he would ever see his bride. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Y'all, I want to take a quick minute to tell you about one of my favorite nonprofit organizations here in Middle Tennessee. It's called Poster Nashville. Now, this organization supports people during times of housing or medical crises by providing compassionate, temporary care for their pets. That's right. Poster helps secure loving homes for beloved little furballs when their human companions are going through things that might otherwise cause them to have to give them up. But since Poster began back in 2020, they've been able to reunite nearly 250 pets with their loving pet parents after they were able to secure housing, keeping families together through tough times. Of course, y'all, I have to say from personal experience, it's been an awesome program to be around. My kids and I have been fortunate enough to hang out with some of the pups. And trust me, what Poster is doing through a devoted network of volunteers is absolutely heartwarming. So if you'd like to help, Poster is in the middle of their annual fundraiser right now, trying to hit a goal of $20,000. And it would mean the world to me if you'd consider helping us get there. All you got to do is visit southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. That's right, southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. Theodosia Burr Alston's trip to New York from Georgetown should have taken less than a week. But tragically, the Patriot never arrived at its destination. And with no word from its crew or the passengers, its fate was entirely unknown. As you can expect, both Alston and Burr were overcome with fear and concern and 
began frantically corresponding back and forth in the hopes that they might find some answers or maybe even a little bit of hope. Tomorrow will be three weeks since, in obedience to your wishes, Theodosia left me. It is three weeks and not yet one line from her. My mind is tortured. I wrote you on the 29th, the day before Theo sailed, but on the next day she would embark in the privateer Patriot, a pilot boat-built schooner commanded by Captain Overstocks with an old New York pilot as sailing master. The vessel had dismissed her crew and was returning home with her guns under deck. Her reputed swiftness in sailing inspired such confidence of a voyage of not more than five or six days that the three weeks without a letter filled me with an unhappiness, a wretchedness I can neither describe nor conquer. Gracious God, is my wife too taken from me? I do not know why I write, but I feel that I am miserable. But by the time Governor Alston wrote this letter, his wife's fate had already been sealed, and speculation about the Patriots' whereabouts had already started spreading through the public. Yet to this very day, no one knows the true fate of Theodosia Burr Alston or what happened to the Patriot on that fateful voyage. It's a mystery that left Joseph Alston a, quote, shell of a man until he himself died less than four years later on September 10th, 1816, at the age of 37. But as you might expect, a mystery like this, with an individual who has as high a profile as the notorious former vice president's daughter, there was quite a bit of attention placed on solving it, and dozens of theories were thrown around, some, of course, more outlandish than others. However, most seemed to believe that the Patriot had fallen victim to one of the many pirate ships known to troll the Carolina coastline. Well, over the following decades, this belief gained steam in the public as every so often a newspaper would report some bold claim that an old pirate confessed to the crime on either his deathbed or from his prison cell. The first was from John Defarges and Robert Johnson in 1820, two men who were privateers aboard the Patriot. They confessed to having led a mutiny two or three days after the ship left port and claimed that they locked everyone down in the hold, stole all of their valuables, and then scuttled the ship, killing everyone on board. Unfortunately, their story had an awful lot of holes in it, and since the men were awaiting execution for unrelated crimes, it seems as if they were just trying to get attention. And y'all, they were far from the last ones to do that. In 1874, an old man named Jean-Baptiste Calistra from Lake Charles, Louisiana, told the Galveston Daily News that he was once a pirate on the Vengeance, a ship in the pirate Jean Lafitte's fleet. And during his time aboard it, he witnessed Theodosia's demise. The ship, which was commanded by Captain Octave Chauvet, overtook the Patriots somewhere off of the Atlantic coast. A struggle ensued and the pirates boarded the ships, slaughtered the crew, and took a woman with them for the captain to do whatever repugnant things he wished to do with her. 
but Kalistra says that the woman fought back and eventually chose to kill herself rather than submit to the captain's wishes. And how did the confessor know that this woman was Theodosia? He said that not only did she wear clothes made of the finest materials, but she also wore a golden locket that contained a picture of a boy and was engraved with the words, To my wife, Theodosia. Now, there are far too many claims like Kalistra's for me to possibly discuss them all in one city, but the most infamous supposed confession was from an old sailor named Benjamin F. Burdick, known as Old Frank. As reported in the 1878 edition of the New York Times, the one-time pirate told a minister's wife on his deathbed that he had been part of the crew that ransacked the Patriot. He said there was one lady on board who was beautiful appearing, intelligent and cultivated, who gave her name as Mrs. Theodosia Alston. When her turn came to walk the fatal plank, she asked for a few moments' time, which was gruffly granted her. She then retired to her berth and changed her apparel, appearing on deck in a few moments clad in pure white garments. And with a Bible in her hand, she announced that she was ready. She appeared as calm and composed as if she were at home, and not a tremor crept over her frame or a pallor overspread her features as she walked toward her fate. As she was taking the fatal steps, she folded her hand over her bosom and raised her eyes to heaven. She fell and sank without a murmur or a sigh. Theodosia's biographer, Charles Felton Pigeon, spent an entire chapter of his 1907 work, Theodosia, the first gentlewoman of her time, exploring the claims made by Mrs. McComer, the minister's wife who attended to Old Frank. Aside from several small inaccuracies, Pigeon writes she was awful consistent with the story over the years. And aside from some little details here or there, he eventually ended the chapter by claiming, quote, Men have been executed on the strength of circumstantial evidence much weaker than this. Of course, the most fanciful tale to emerge from the mystery is one that we've covered here on Southern Gothic in an episode titled The Legend of the Female Stranger. This particular story revolves around the grave of an unknown woman that's located in the St. Paul's Episcopal Church graveyard in Alexandria, Virginia. In the autumn of 1816, a mysterious man, accompanied by a lady, arrived at the port of Alexandria, Virginia. The young couple was described as attractive, and the man was said to be a charismatic Englishman. Unfortunately, his supposed wife was incredibly ill. What ailed her is now unknown, but due to the multitude of dangers inherent in sea travel, it was likely that she was struck by the illness during her voyage. Once in Alexandria, the gentleman rented a room at Gadsby's Tavern, and with the assistance of Mrs. John Wise and Mrs. James Stewart, he attempted to nurse the young woman back to health. At the man's behest, they kept to the utmost secrecy 
hiding their identities with such vigor that when the woman's condition took a turn for the worse and Dr. Samuel Richards was called to help, he was paid extra on the condition of anonymity. Yet nothing they did was able to save her. On October 14, 1816, the mysterious young woman died in room number eight of Gadsby's Tavern. Now, some folks claim that this young couple was in fact Theodosia and Dr. Green. However, that's pretty unlikely. After all, as Aaron Burr said himself years later in response to all of those rumors surrounding the Patriots' fate, that he didn't believe any of those conspiracy theories. She is dead. She perished in the miserable little pilot boat in which she left. Were she alive, all the prisons in the world could not keep her from her father. When I realized the truth of her death, the world became a blank to me, and life then lost all its value. Both Burr and Joseph Alston believed that Theodosia had died in a shipwreck, as it was reported that not long after the Patriot had left port, a vicious storm blew through the area. Archaeologist James L. Mitchie confirmed the likelihood of this in 1998 after he, quote, commissioned a comprehensive search of the British Admiralty records to locate the logbooks of the warships that were patrolling the North Carolina coast during the period when the Patriot was lost. According to the 2003 book, Theodosia Burr Alston, Portrait of a Prodigy, the archaeologist was trying to find evidence that the British fleet may have actually come into contact with the Patriot. After all, had a British ship stopped a boat with a former vice president's daughter, not to mention a governor's wife, they'd most certainly have put it in their logbook. Yet no such record existed. On the other hand, what this search did do was confirm the existence of that fierce storm, which began on January 2nd and continued on to the following day. If the ship managed to escape this battering, which continued until midnight, it then faced near hurricane force winds in the early hours of Sunday. Given this knowledge, the Patriot probably sank between 6 p.m. Saturday and 8 a.m. Sunday. In spite of all of this, though, there seems to be only one piece of physical evidence to survive the Patriots' final voyage. A portrait discovered on the wall of an old woman's shack on Nags Head in 1869, a painting that Theodosia had supposedly taken with her as a gift for her father. Well, Dr. William Gaskins Poole found the portrait when he and his daughter made a call to assist an elderly woman named Polly Mann. Mann told the doctor that her deceased husband was a wrecker who scavenged ships that washed up on the beaches and that this particular item came from a ship that they had found decades ago before they had met. She told him that her husband claimed that the empty ship they had found had no signs of a violent exchange or anything like spilled blood or the like, although it was in disarray with trunks clearly thrown open and belongings strewn about as if they had been rummaged through, an indication that it very well could have been boarded by pirates who forced everyone to walk the plank. 
Poole's daughter claimed that then, after the woman told them the story of how she acquired the painting, she showed her and her father a number of relics from that ship, including black silk dresses and other items that were likely owned by a woman of means. So Dr. Poole was convinced this must be Theodosia, and he spent the rest of his life attempting to authenticate the portrait, which is now on display in the Lewis Walpole Library at Yale. Unfortunately, even after almost two centuries of scrutiny, there's no way of ever knowing if that portrait is in fact the daughter of Aaron Burr. Now, y'all know that legends as wild as this one don't just end like that, right? It would be practically criminal if an unsolved mystery of this nature didn't also have a bit of supernatural local lore attached to it. And in this case, with so many theories surrounding her demise, the ghost of Theodosia Burr has purportedly been seen all over the Atlantic coast. Folks in Georgetown have made claims that her spirit has appeared around the old brick warehouse down at the dock where she boarded the Patriot and was seen for the last time. Others claim her ghost has been seen near the Alston's one-time summer home out on the beach or the rice fields of the former Oaks Plantation where they lived. One of the most fanciful claims is that Theodosia's wandering spirit can be found out on Baldhead Island. Some have reported that the Patriot was attacked by pirates and Theodosia had escaped there on the island. And as such, local lore claims her spirit is still on those beaches being chased by three headless pirates. The most infamous story, though, took place in 1944 and made national headlines when a Coast Guard ship on the lookout for Nazi spies and traitors saw the image of a woman walking along an otherwise secure coastline. Well, the men fired upon the mysterious individual, believing her to be a threat, but she eluded them. Later, when they spoke to a local fisherman, he told them simply, explaining what they saw. You'll see her again, but you won't capture her. And it'll do no good shooting at her either. The bullets can't harm her. In the winter of 1941, when submarines were bad, I was out one night and saw her. She kept pointing out to sea. She was crying. She seemed to be wanting to show me or tell me something. I didn't understand. But before dark, there was an explosion where she pointed, and I saw a burning tanker sink. If I'd understood her, we'd have had planes and sub-chasers from Norfolk in time. That's why I think she wants to prove that the birds ain't traitors. Ghosts are like that, you know. That's mostly why they walk. Over 200 years have passed since Governor Joseph Alston kissed his beloved wife goodbye. A woman whose education and intellect defied the social norms of the time. But what truly happened to Theodosia Burr will 
will likely never be known. Although maybe, just maybe, it's this mystery that keeps the memory of her alive. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independent podcast produced by Southern Gothic Media and still recorded in Brandon's closet. This week's episode was written by Brandon with additional research done by Hester Black. If you'd like to hear future episodes of the show absolutely ad-free, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash southerngothicmedia and becoming a supporter there. Or you can sign up for Southern Gothic Premium on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Of course, if you aren't able to do that today, but you still want to help support the show, consider sharing us with one of your friends or leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting app. And y'all, as always, thanks for listening. Lucky Lady Shacks. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.